Well, I would invite you to take a Bible in the seat in front of you, and if you would, turn it Page 669, uh, Zechariah chapter 3. Page 669 in the Church Bibles, Zechariah chapter 3, and we're going to read some verses from there. Let me just tell you why you're turning there. A little less than a month ago, I preached from this text for a funeral service, and I'm going to do something tonight I've never done in 19 years of public ministry. Um, I've never recycled the sermon, but... After I preached the sermon, the, I had a few thoughts afterwards, and one of the thoughts was that I thought it would be the highest good, the highest possible good that I could offer to God as his servant and to you as your servant um, this sermon. So I, I made some additions just because I thought it would fit the context better, but um, I just need you to know that. <laughs> okay, chapter 3 of Zechariah. Page 669, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Verse 9, See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Amen. If we could, let's bow together, please. God and Father, we do humbly ask for the help of the Holy Spirit that we might hear from you, the living God, through the pages of your word. Please, Father, in your mercy, grant to us strength and capacity and an interest you would desire in order that much will be made known about you and your saving grace. So we would ask, God, that you would glorify yourself and win us all to yourself. For Jesus' sake, amen. In the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we are told that after his resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus taught the Gospel from the entire Old Testament to his disciples. And he told them that this is what is written. He was referring to the Old Testament. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations. So what we need to see in this third chapter of Zechariah is what Jesus would see. Because here we have a picture which God has given that represents the one gospel that the one God through His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, puts forward to all people so that they can know that all their sins are forgiven, 
They can live within that framework. They can know lasting peace with God. They can please God. And they can be certain that what takes place after a person dies in Christ is not horrible, but it is wonderful. Only because an act of God has provided this and not an act or a great number of acts of a mere man or woman. So what we have here is God, if you would, pulling back the curtain of heaven. He's given us a peek into heaven as God's servant Zechariah, whose name means God remembers, who lived uh, post-exilic, meaning he was a very young man when Daniel, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, when Daniel was an old man. And this is very important at this time because God's people in this context, they were a mess. The city was a mess. The temple was a mess. The priesthood was a mess. And frankly, all hope was lost. And hope was needed. And God, in his goodness, was going to give it. Consequently, what we have here is Zechariah us, is giving us a picture of what takes place in heaven when a holy God exercises his judgment on those who belong to him. So this scene in chapter 3 is a courtroom scene. And if you take yourself there in your mind's eye and look down in your Bible, you'll see that God is there. He's the judge. Verse 1, Satan is there. He is the uh, prosecutor. And in the dock is Joshua. He's the high priest. The high priest which had the duty of representing all of the people of God. In other words, one man standing on behalf of one people. So we have a few phrases then which will take us through the verses. There's three, so you'll know when we get done. Number one, Satan is silenced. Now, on one level, the first scene is almost comical. Satan's name means accuser, as in the one who will essentially not shut his filthy mouth. And he is willing to constantly, consistently just badger God telling God how awful and how sinful and how wicked his people have been. In fact, the very first verse there is actually a, a kind of play on words in the Hebrew in which it says, Satan is at the right hand of the angel of the Lord being Satan. Okay, so what does Satan do? Well, again, he is constantly accusing. He won't close his mouth because he knows nothing of forgiveness. He only knows accusation. He only knows criticism, condemnation, and he will not stop. Now, we may, we may know some people like that. We may know some preachers like that. And sadly, we may talk that way to ourselves. However, here in God's courtroom, before Satan can keep opening his mouth, the Lord, verse 2, so this is God, capital L, capital O-R-D, Yahweh says essentially, stop it. Stop it. You are rebuked. You are censored. I will not listen to you. You have no voice here. And I'm going to correct you and your filthy language towards this man standing before me now who represents my people. Okay, so if you're with me, Joshua's the high priest. 
He's representing the hopelessness of God's people, the pitifulness of God's temple, the awfulness of God's city, all of it which is representative of God and all of which is in a total mess. And yes, they have brought it on themselves. And yes, Satan is jumping on all that and he just spews out condemnation and accusation. And God says, verse 2, enough. Enough. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Stop. This Wednesday morning's edition of the online edition of the New York Times front page or the front cover uh, had the story of uh, another moral downfall of uh, a Christian man, a Christian governor of Alabama. And I read through the article and there was no shortages of people who were standing in line ready to talk to a reporter to accuse, right? Uh, yes, this is Jake from the, uh, the super-duper moral majority group, and we can't believe what he did. Uh, yes, this is Susie, and I come from the Moral Rights Society for Super Family Values, and I can't believe uh, what he did. Uh, yes, my name is Jesus Christ, and you, without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And throw it hard. In fact, throw it so hard that you make him bleed. That's the first point. Satan is silence. Second phrase, Joshua, the high priest, is made clean. Not made himself clean, but he is made clean. Huge difference. And you see this in the text, verses 2b and 3. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. So you see, Joshua as the high priest was in a terrible predicament. He was on fire, burning, and dressed in filthy clothes. Fire here has the sense of, as you would suspect, judgment. Because he's a very guilty man. He's a sin-filled man. Like all men and women for all time, he has not done what God said to do, and he has done what God said not to do. He's gone his own way. Therefore, he is under God's fiery judgment. The people as well. Because as the high priest, he is representing the same actions of God's people in Jerusalem at that time. Now, if that wasn't horrible enough, burning to death, but not dying, he is, verse 3, dressed in filthy rags. Now, you can't see this in your English translation, but in the Hebrew, it reads, he is covered over in excrement, feces. He's covered in human waste. Now, hold that in your mind. He's covered in feces. It's horrible. It's not pretty, but hold it there. Because if you've ever worked or are, do work in the medical profession or, or have cared for a sick or dying loved one, you've probably dealt with that kind of thing on some level. I've had two pastoral visits where very sick people lost it and the it was all over the place and I had to help clean it up. But you see, this is how God, in God's word, describes sin. This is what God sees when he sees sin. So we may toy with it. We may call it other names. We may try to throw a blanket over it or blame our parents or other people for it or use perfumes, if you would, to cover up its scent. But there it is. There it is. 
And he, like we, like all humanity, cannot clean himself, ourselves up. If you like, I can't clean myself up. How embarrassing, right? Some of you will know Shakespeare. And if you know Shakespeare, you'll know the play Macbeth. And there's a classic scene in Macbeth where Lady Macbeth, having been part of a murder, begins to cry out in her guilt. And she says, not all the perfumes of Arabia can make these blood-stained hands clean again. And then she begins to try to rub the, blame, the, the blood out. And she says, out, damn spot, out. Out, I say. But she can't make herself clean. And this ruins her mind. And this is what the Bible says is the human condition. There is no one righteous before God. No one. Each of us have gone our own way. We are dead in our sins. We are guilty. So what do we do with our guilt? Where do we take it? However, here's the far greater problem. We can't remain in God's presence covered in our sin. And we can't stop sinning. Any honest person would have to admit this. And maybe, maybe we would be stunned if all the iniquities of the best of us in this room were put on a list to be read by all. I would be embarrassed. I would, on my own, as Joshua, be on fire and soiled. Do you know what it's like on a Saturday night to be in a fit of rage before you have to preach twice on a Sunday morning? So what can we do? What can we do? Well, you know some of the remedies that we are offered. Some people say suppress it keep it all inside. But that's how humans rot. Doctors and psychologists constantly tell us suppression can easily make people physically sick or lend itself to some kind of obsessive compulsive behavior. Or some say to ignore it. Sin's not that bad. I mean, the guy behind the box is a nut job. Just look at him and he's talking about human feces. How about this one? Condemn others. That's an easy one. People mess up all the time. And all we have to do, can you believe what she did? How, how could she? And then we pull a Barry White. <sighs> that feels so much better. I'm not as bad as they are. Some people say do good deeds. Okay, but how many? Some people say, get serious about God. Okay, but how serious? Some people say, look, you're just going to have to stop being just good, and you're going to have to start being really, really, really good. But jeepers, that is the problem to begin with. I can't be that way. Not all the time, and all the time is what is desired. Or, and this probably fits some of us here, we become the worst of all Pharisees. And we present before the watching world a picture of the perfect man or the perfect woman or the perfect husband or the perfect wife or the perfect family. At least on the outside. While on the inside, we are twisting and turning because we are not sure how long we can keep that thing up. 
So what can we do? Well, says the Bible, we cannot do anything. We are dead in this problem. And this is not a problem we can toy with or ignore. It needs a solution. So the better question is not, what can we do? But rather, can someone please help me? Right? Can someone please help me? And only a person's pride will get in the way of that question. Can someone please help me? Is there someone good enough and kind enough and merciful enough and strong enough and and heart in perfect enough to do for me what I can't do for myself? Is there? Verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Literally, I will put festival clothes on you. I will put party clothes on you. So you see, what we have here is what theologians call the proto-evangelion. This is a prototype of the gospel in the Old Testament. This is where God in the Old Testament takes away sin in a single moment. And God puts clothes on this man and God makes him new. So the burning and the filth is a vision of sinful people state before a holy God, yes, and we are helpless and we need mercy, yes. So God needs to do something. First point, Satan is silent. Second, Joshua is made clean. Final point, God gives mercy. God gives mercy. So you see, loved ones, this is the gospel. Jesus Christ, by his suffering and death on the cross, has paid the penalty of our sin and offers this gift to everyone. So Joshua is totally helpless. His sin has done this, and he needs pardon for sin. All of us need this. And this burning soil, Joshua, is a picture of humanity's sinful state before a holy God, a God who is totally good. But Jesus, who, by the way, his Hebrew name would be Joshua, is actually in his crucifixion, standing like Joshua on our behalf as our substitute. So you see, Jesus on the cross, if you would, is covered in filth. However, he's not covered with his own filth. No, he's covered with our filth as he takes our sin in his body on a tree. Verse 4 again, See, I have taken away your sin. In other words, all that has offended God's holiness and offended God's goodness has been removed from you, Joshua, by an act of God. In other words, loved ones, this is what we know as grace. Grace. The time for accusing is past. Satan is silenced. And the God who acted as judge now as acting now as Joshua's defense. Verse 2, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Joshua is rescued and all is forgiven. All is forgiven always. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Martin Luther, the reformer, tells a story that once he was in his study... And his mind was being tortured by his past sins by the evil one. And the story goes like this. Satan began to write out a list of all of Luther's sins. And Luther asked Satan, are you finished yet? No, shouted Satan. And he reached for more paper to keep writing out all the sins of Luther. Sins he actually had committed. Finished yet? No. And, and page after page was being filled out by the evil one. All of Luther's actual sins. Satan is finally finished. 
Luther then reaches for his pen and writes over each page again and again, the blood of Jesus, God's only Son, cleanses me from all my sin. The blood of Jesus, God's only Son, cleanses me from all my sin. And loved ones, that is the heart of the gospel. Verse 4, I will take away your filthy clothes and you will rise with great rejoicing. Rise with great rejoicing, rejoicing because your sins have been taken away. Loved ones, only in Jesus Christ do we have the provision of righteousness we need and must have because the righteousness God requires is not a righteousness a man or a woman could produce. This was a righteousness that God in His grace was making available to to those who would receive it passively, not those who would try and achieve it actively, but that we receive it by faith, a faith by which a person could be Righteous before God. Be made righteous before God. See, sometimes we get in this idea that, okay, we give them the law, and then we give them the gospel, and then Sunday by Sunday we need to give them the law. Law, gospel, law. That's not the gospel. Gospel's the gospel. And you see that in verse 4. New clothes. That's the picture we're given in a couple of books in the New Testament, Ephesians and Colossians, where we're told to put on the robes of Christ. Put on the holiness of Christ, which is credited to you, given to you, Christian, ascribed to you, just as we are right now. That's beautiful. That's the gospel. That's good news. Verse 9 Says the Lord Almighty, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Now, now, how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, again, this is the, the proto-evangelion, the future gospel. Because that day where, where God removes the sins of his people in a single day, we call that day Good Friday. Because on the cross, we see that God does demand righteousness. But in Jesus Christ, he provides righteousness. Because God treated his son like a sinner so that he could treat sinners like his sons and his daughters. Because in the punishment Jesus received, we see sin's fruit. We see sin's penalty. We see that although we may try to blow past sin by saying, you know, oops, I'll get it right the next time. We see that sin brings death. So you're here tonight. What is it that condemns you? You're here tonight. What is it that stops you from coming to Jesus? How could you, in all honesty, how could you be angry in a sermon like this. Jesus offers you the gift of becoming a justified sinner given the perfect purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, right now, righteous, right now, before a holy God through faith in Jesus Christ, which is God's only remedy for sin, faith in his Son. We cry out for mercy. God puts us through, if you would, the divine car wash. And he puts on the eternal super sealant and says, you are mine and you are clean forever. 
Loved ones, either we're looking for forgiveness or we have so hardened our heart to sin and God's remedy in Christ that we have become very hard and we're very difficult and maybe even very religious because we don't think we need this as bad as Jesus says. So I beg you, if you're looking for forgiveness, in Jesus Christ you can have it. You can have it. Last word. If you had to break down the gospel just to its core parts, you could do it in four parts. Part one, we are going to die and then stand before God. That's part one. Part two, we are not perfect. Part three, but perfection is what God requires, not because he's snooty and not because he's heartless, but because he knows two things. Number one, he knows how horrible sin is and he knows how it destroys people and lives, and families, and marriages, and futures, and it starts arguments, and it starts wars, and people suffer. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that God hates sin because it offends him. And it locks you out of his heaven if Jesus isn't received. Part one, you're going to die. Part two, we're not perfect. Part three, perfection is what is needed. Part four, humble yourself and cry out for mercy. Get some new Jesus clothes. They last forever. They're always in style in God's heaven. They will always stay neat and clean because Jesus has made it so. Because at the cross, God pardons sin and God provides righteousness. And if you're a Christian, get this in your head. Because God credits us with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, then that is an unchanging declaration from God himself. So it's ridiculous when someone says, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a very good one. It's very ridiculous. How could you say that? I'm not a very good Christian because I can guarantee you that person does not understand what it means to be a Christian because if you are a Christian, there are no imperfect ones. No imperfect ones because Jesus has made it so. Because you are in a relationship with God and that is not because you're full of yourself. No, it's because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and all of that perfection is given to you. So the person who says, I'm not a very good Christian, is not relating to God through Jesus, but he's relating to God through their performance. And if that's you, you can stop now. (laughs) You can stop now. Because when we do right, God is delighted with us because of my substitute, Jesus Christ. And when I do wrong, God is still delighted in me because of my substitute, Jesus Christ. Now, does that sound shocking? Loved ones, that is the greatness of the gospel. Not striving to earn, but living accepted by God through the performance of Jesus Christ. Someone told me a long, long time ago that I need to wake up every morning thinking about justification. He said, because once you get that in place, once you really get that in place, how can you not long to live for God? Because this is a secure, unconditional love, all because of Jesus. So joy 
Real joy is there. Now, about a month ago on a Sunday morning, I told you that sometimes I have two endings. And at the very end, I got to pick which one I'm going to use. Tonight, I have three endings. <laughs> there's, there's the, oh my gosh, my daughter is leaving home soon ending. <laughs> there's the John Stott quote. And then there's the St. Patrick's Day be- ending because when I preached the sermon, it was actually on St. Patrick's Day. I think I'm going to give you the, the, oh my gosh, my daughter's leaving soon quote. Is that okay? So when the kids were little, most of you know this. There was one hymn that we said, please memorize this. Just one. This is what it is. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt, guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul was counted free. For God the just is satisfied. Listen carefully because this is justification. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Can there be any better news? Thanks for your attention. Let's pray as we prepare to sing and then in a moment take communion together. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for the gift of your perfect righteousness so that now we are able to relate to you through Christ's perfection and not our own. Help us in these things this Good Friday evening. And may the truth of Jesus Christ be true of everyone in this room. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.